That's the Jay Giles Band from 1972, I think, Looking for a Love. That is a song that is so um, core to the human experiment, the human operation of finding an answer. Who am I and how can I know and who is going to tell me? And if only I could find someone to love me, I would know. Looking for a love. Um, go back also and listen to um, their other monster hit from that first era of their creativity entitled Give It Up. You know, Jay Giles lives in Groton, Massachusetts. Isn't that fascinating? But anyway, this is podcast 125 entitled What Now? And it's taken from the last um, extra-canonical line in Finding Nemo, that amazing Pixar movie. I think it's Pixar, in which uh, at the end, through a variety of extraordinary plot twists, which are entirely believable in terms of the plot, six or seven delightful little creatures from an aquarium that has been hitherto uh, located in a waiting room of a dentist's office find themselves in separate individual plastic bags floating in Sydney Harbor. And after this unbelievable epic escape that they have made in the service of reuniting Nemo with his frantically, desperately searching father. Now, having succeeded in doing this great thing, they look at one another in their individual plastic bags floating on the surface of Sydney Harbor, and the blowfish says to the others, Uh, what now? Well, the question is a good one. And the question is one that I ask a great deal of myself, because obviously I ask myself that question. All right, now that you think you know a couple things, or you've learned a few things, and I'm going to say what it is I learned through a, an odd but to me wonderful movie association that will begin the podcast, what now? And I propose to talk a little bit about the question, a kind of cinematic enduring answer with a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek, and then point out how it actually works out, but um, mythically, or shall I say fictionally, because I'm going to make it up in terms of four characters in works of fiction whom I admire, but whose futures are left open-ended by their creator. And I want to talk a little bit about their future, and then I finally want to conclude with Bob Dylan. Think Bob Dylan said that, to quote Eric Burden. Now, listen to what a film a critic whose name is Julie Kirgo very fine uh, writer, in my opinion, says about the movie The Egyptian, which was made in 1954 and starred uh, Edmund Purdom, directed by Michael Curtis, and had Victor Mature and um, Gene Simmons and uh, Gene Tierney and others in it. And uh, this movie, which is based on a really piercing and fabulous and deep post-war sort of downer of a historical novel by Micah Waltari, the Finnish Lutheran child of the manse. Great fan I am of his. This movie uh, was based on the novel The Egyptian. And uh, the um, movie has just been released very recently on Blu-ray in a limited edition from Twilight Time. It is absolutely fabulous. It's the old run, don't walk. For every conceivable reason in the world, this movie is worthwhile. But I'm not going to talk about the... Um, 
Technicolor side of it or the production side of it or the Hollywood side of it. I'm going to talk about really what it's saying because the script by John Dominic Dunn, I think that was his name, I'm, uh, and uh, Casey Robinson is really very enduring because the story is enduring. And listen to what Julie Kirgo says about it. It should be noted that by the time such and such a moment arrives in the movie, the actor's conviction, speaking of Edmund Purdom, who plays the Egyptian, the actor's conviction has been bolstered by two hours of meandering but brilliantly detailed narrative, crammed with spectacle and peopled by a collection of marvelously eccentric characters. Unlike virtually any other sword and sandal epic, the Egyptian is a real quest story. It meanders because Sinue, the leading character, does. He is a wanderer and an exile, and the film's peregrinating plot is driven by his oft-repeated question, why? Everyone he meets in his odyssey, which eventually extends its reach to nearly every corner of the ancient world, provides a piece of the puzzle, a stitch in the cloth, a title for the mosaic and in highly entertaining fashion. Now, one more thing that Julie Kirgo writes. She talks about the other main character, or the character who plays the monotheist uh, uh, prophetic pharaoh, Ignaton, as we used to say, and uh, Akhenaten, as is currently the fashion. The pharaoh himself, she writes, a politically weak but spiritually inspired quasi-madman, played as a kind of proto-hippie by Michael Wilding, he of the gentle manner and pale fire gaze. Well, this proto-hippie sort of uh, love-is-all-you-need kind of flower power um, uh, character, um, it is in his... um, it is in his uh, last scene, the penultimate scene of the film, an extended death scene that the uh, pharaoh uh, witnesses to a faith which, despite his um, failed and somewhat fanatical effort to bring it to the people of Egypt, not impose, that's not the right word, uh, but to bring it to the people of Egypt is foiled and destroyed and quashed and suppressed and extinguished. And yet when the pharaoh uh, concludes, played again so beautifully by the gentle Michael Wilding, when he says, God is in everything. And then he concludes in a moment of tremendous dramatic importance by the words, God forgives everyone. And by that he means Sinue the Egyptian. And Sinue, who at this time has become a rather um, nihilistic, profoundly cynical, grown man. He's a grown man. But his uh, profound, almost nihilistic cynicism is at one fell swoop changed into faith when he understands that God forgives everyone and God is in everything. There's an acquiescence coupled with a absolution and mercy as opposed to opposition and resentment in the main, the character of the pharaoh that creates such an impression on Sinue that um, great and important things happen even though his life itself is over for all practical purposes. Now, I say that because uh, we're all like Sinue the Egyptian. Uh, I think it's really the case, but I don't think enough people really give this too much thought until it's... uh, until it's too late, really, that we're all on a quest to know who we are. And who we are is very often um, discovered through whom we know. Not just mother and father, but women, men, partners, lovers, wives, husbands. Um, Not so much children, 
but um, we are looking, and even we are looking for a love to call my own. Looking all over, I'm looking all the night, looking for a... Boy, don't I wish I could have been one of the backup. I feel I could have performed possibly in a good day as one of the backup singers 30 years ago, but not today. But um, we're looking, we're looking, we're looking. And whether it's Gene Simmons or Gene Tierney or um, Bella Darvey, who plays Nefer Nefer, the really meanly manipulative um, seductress. Whoever we may be, whoever, wherever we may look, we are looking for someone else to tell us who we are. And Sinaway uh, doesn't find out until the end. And I would agree with Sinaway that he has found out uh, in these two remarkable things. God is in everything. And God forgives everyone, specifically implying you, Sinaue, who is uh, in the middle of an appalling personal um, act of uh, malice and uh, and uh, despair that is criminal. And this, um, and seeking for power as well, and when Sinaue is finally caught, he discovers uh, what he is and who he is, that he is uh, one who has been looking for love, Essentially, to quote John Travolta in all the wrong places from that wonderful movie that you remember the Bucking Bronco with Deborah Winger, and now he is um, he is able to quiet and be still and let God write the next chapter of his life, which is benign, albeit very quiet. You see the movie. You must run to this. Now I'm going to talk about those characters now in Finding Nemo. Uh, now what? Well, now what? What is the next step? And I'm going to sort of limb out for the listener what I think would be the next step in life of four characters, and this will be probably my last um, podcast that will deal directly with John Galsworthy's works, having just finished eight plays in succession and nine novels in succession, although there are two more that I have yet to read that I'm desperate to read, and I shall, hopefully, by the next time you hear this voice, but nevertheless, at this Christmas podcast, what will happen to these characters, all of whom, in one way or another, have sort of found out that uh, Sinue the Egyptian was right to hear from Ignaton the pharaoh, the monotheist, the prophetic proto-hippie of the pure gaze and the gentle voice, God is in everything. That is to say, my life is a matter of acquiescence, not of opposition. Fear nicht gegen. And um, that God forgives everyone, which is the core uh, Christian insight, as in um, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And so um, what, uh, what is the good that uh, is presented to these characters. And uh, put yourself into this. Feel free to put yourself into it. I hope I can finish in about 10 minutes. It's real short. The first is Dinny Cheryl, the hero, the um, hero of the last three of Galsworthy's novels under the heading, end of the chapter, the novels Made in Waiting, Flower and Wilderness, and she is the Flower and Wilderness, Dinny Cheryl. And finally, across the river, known in this country as One More River, what is your future to be? Well, um, She's crossed over. She's found out the same things that uh, Sinaway found out. And I believe that she will end up becoming a happily married woman to not her original first love, perhaps not even her true love, but a man who will become the true love for her life. 
uh, who will be the source of all her final hopes and loving, even though she carries a great torch. She cannot help it for a man earlier named Wilfred Desert. We'll get to him in a minute. I believe that she will be a happy, devoted, and loving, and beloved and loving wife to her husband, Tony Dornforth, the Roman Catholic Tory MP for their district. I believe she will um, become a Catholic herself, raise her children in the church, uh, and yet retain her sagacity, her wisdom. And when it comes time for her children to leave, I believe she will allow them to differentiate. I believe she will not be a by-love-possessed mother. I believe she will let them go with loss, with mourning, with sorrow, with the normal and categorical and way of all flesh that we all have, especially mothers as their children leave. But she will let them leave. And they will develop, and they will remain Christians because she is so sagacious. And there's nothing to react against but only to model in their mother's wisdom and gentle detachment. And that she will uh, be involved in her Roman Catholic parish, uh, be completely at one with her wonderful husband and he with her, and uh, be loved and lauded, as in Proverbs 31. The next one is Wilfred Desert. Now, he already found his peace, and his peace was enduring and eternal, and I believe he will go from strength to strength in the life of perfect service in thy heavenly kingdom. Uh, one of the later poems, I think, that uh, Galsworthy wrote, I believe it's later, but I may be wrong in the timing of it. I have it here, is uh, Serenity is God. And Wilfred Desert, he will go, as I say, from strength to strength in the life of perfect service in the that art thou oneness of universal God mood direction, loving purpose, benign hope and being for all, and uh, he will uh, be there forever. And then there are two other characters. Uh, they're of great interest to me, as you know, and I hope they're of interest to you because they reflect a great deal about current issues, although I'm not trying to relate them to current issues in religion, but they do. The first is uh, Mr. Pearson, Edward Pearson, who left his parish in London, a gentleman, a well-educated man um, of independent means, but utterly ascetic and Franciscan. And he was destroyed by the church. He was destroyed by a church that uh, destroyed him because he was too forgiving to his daughter. And uh, needless to say, as we who know the church know, that you can't really be a Christian anywhere, certainly not in the church, without um, uh, arousing tremendous resistance, whoever you may be. Catholic, Protestant, liberal, conservative, evangelical, liturgical, high church, low church, broad church, whoever you are, you'll rarely find a place for grace in the uh, any kind of institution. I'm not sure it's there ever, but I'm open to hearing differently. But um, Edward Pearson left and became an army chaplain in Palestine. I think what happened to Edward Pearson is that he died. I think he... Um, he never lost his faith. He died in the bosom of the Church of England and was buried with full honors as a priest and a chaplain with a British expeditionary force under Lord Allenby in uh, Palestine, as it was called then. <clears throat> and I believe he's buried in one of those uh, military uh, cemeteries in near Joppa. There are two or three, aren't there, of just English ones that are still preserved, and I believe he's buried there. And uh, he uh, will have died uh, with uh, never really wanting ever to go back into institutional ministry except uh, as an army chaplain. And in his ministry to the dying and the dead in the campaign against the Ottoman Turks, uh, he caught uh, Lawrence a little bit late, but he probably was there to help a lot of young troopers and cavalry uh, die of various diseases and various wounds out there in Gaza, or wherever it was, Joppa, and um, Syria, the mandate. And he, um, he was so devoted to helping these men to make the final stage, the 
the adventuring West, as Galsworthy calls it, towards the end of uh, Saint's Progress, that um, he died in faith and knowing that his children were happy and knowing completely that he was loved by his daughter Gratian and by his daughter Noel, even though he had driven them away from faith by his uh, unconscious and unintentional pharisaical version of Christianity. And yet I believe they ultimately both ended up going to the church, partly bringing up their families in the church with a certain amount of detachment and some degree of resentment, but partly because their dad um, stood the course and had been brave enough and fine enough and ultimately um, shattered enough to go and give his life in service to others in a... Um, somewhat more direct way than he was able to in his parish in London. Now, the third, Michael Strangway, I've given him a lot of thought. Michael Strangway was curate in a parish in Devon and was destroyed by the church and destroyed by his own forgiveness of his wayward wife, whom he refused to divorce because she asked him not to divorce him because the man she loved and wanted to be with uh, was a doctor whose practice would be destroyed were he to marry a divorced woman and were he to divorce his own wife. And so um, she begs him not to divorce her and he doesn't. I'm quite convinced that in later years she will hunt him up and ask him for the divorce which he would not give at her request and at her request he will give her the divorce so she can marry this man. And it's a terrible story. But I believe he's uh, so invested in the Nazarene notion of acquiescence that he will eventually grant her the divorce that she will ask for years down the line but he will have left the ministry completely he'll be wandering for a while with his pal um, from a very different caste and education and every conceivable way different but his brother as we know from this story his brother in the in the spirit James Kramer and they will wander about sort of being a little bit like Father Sergius or the man on the ferry and resurrection of Tolstoy but that really doesn't wash in um, that doesn't wash in uh, England in 1915. It just doesn't exist really. And I think what will happen, I think Michael Strangway will become a conscientious objector because he's a very young man, and I believe he'll become a conscientious objector, a conchy in World War One terms, and will be treated terribly, and will end up in a camp somewhere in up in Cumbria, a camp of conscientious objectors who were hated. They they weren't treated in the same relatively benign way that they were in the United States in 1941, in 1915 and 16 and 17. They were treated like in a concentration camp. They were horribly treated, and he'll be a country throughout the war, and when he's, and it's over, he'll probably become a little bit like Mr. Miller, or the unrehabilitated doctor in um, Radigan's The Deep Blue Sea, and I believe that Michael Strangway will probably become a hospital orderly, and will keep body and soul together. He's a very well-educated and high-born man, or at least moderately high-born man, and I think he'll become a kind of uh, hospital orderly and eventually probably end up running a branch of the Dr. Bernardo Society for Wayward Children or that is for orphans or something along that line. That's what I think will happen to him. I think he'll end up becoming the much respected head of a uh, of an organization in his late 50s to help uh, troubled individuals in England and he may possibly because of the great change in the climate of England possibly receive um, not a knighthood, but maybe an MBE, probably an MBE at the end of his life uh, for 
his um, redeemed life of 30 years service. That's what I think will happen to Michael Strangway. I don't think he'll ever go back to the church, but I think he'll always be a Christian in his heart like Scrooge. I think he'll uh, be a man who is uh, inoculated by what happened to him in the parish and in his own life, inoculated against uh, the wrong kind of attachments. And he may get married. I hope he does um, again one day. But he will be... um, freed of the attachment and of the misunderstanding that plagued his life. And like Sinaway the Egyptian, he'll end, uh, well, not like Sinaway, but in his heart like Sinaway, a man who dies in self-possession and in the deepest kind of self-understanding. These characters exist throughout English literature at the time. You'll find uh, the main character or the main character we're supposed to regard as central in uh, uh, Eliot's play, um, Family Reunion, who goes off to work in the East End, as Eliot himself said later on, what would happen to him? And Eliot was interviewed about that. He said, oh, I assume he went off to the East End um, and uh, to work with uh, the poor in the East End of London. And uh, similarly... um, the Tolstoy characters I've mentioned, and uh, there are other characters in literature of that time of sort of who couldn't handle. They were too good for the world, and yet they were real people. And let's look at you and me now to close off. What about you? Uh, I mean, really, seriously, let's imagine that you were a, a life, as I said, not of uh, Gagan or against or contrary, uh, opposition or resistance, but a life of fuel, uh, acquiescence and... Uh, equanimity and reconcilement and um, at one with circumstance. What if that could be the case? It's a tremendously happy thing. You know, when you, when you have that feeling about your life, when the opposition and the resistance, uh, you have an immediate surge of creativity. Believe me, an immediate surge. It just happens like that. And I could give you an even more specific example in terms of my own work with my own body, my own little exercises that I do from time to time. Uh, that uh, have shown me that the power of some of these terrible resistances being uh, vitiated or dispersed is a better word, Uh, the elating power of having uh, able to live without uh, resistance. I could talk about the the, um, serious significance of... of, um, Believing that we're 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 in the in in the in the Bob Dylan format of of save that song uh, f- forgiveness uh, that the most direct form of love the subset of love which always creates its own powerful and never to be taken away reconciliation with all things is forgiveness, forgiveness of oneself, forgiveness of others, forgiveness by others. And uh, when Michael Wilding says it, the proto-hippie says it with such piercing, uh, low-key feeling in the Egyptian, God forgives everyone, Sinaway. Um, No wonder Sinaway can live now and write his book. He hasn't written a word of his book, you know, until uh, the very end. And he writes it. Yes, he writes it alone, but he does write it. And he dies in peace. And you'll see what Daryl Zanuck and others placed as the uh, last word, the final word of that most remarkable film, The Egyptian. And so I conclude with the new version of Blowing in the Wind by Dylan. Um, Lloyd Fonville and I and Lee Rossi, Lloyd's sister, heard it together recently. And uh, it was the last song that he played, I think. Was it? I want to say it was. Um, And I've got the uh, recording for you blowing in the wind and he plays it in a way that is um that is different 
Did I mention this to you? I suspect I did. He plays it in a way that it's no longer about the civil rights struggle, although it can be, and it was, and it, it still can be, and it, it has many meanings. It's really about the answer to life. The answer to our life is, uh, has to come from outside ourselves and ultimately has to come from the Holy Spirit, uh, the good God, who, if we can just be still enough to receive the answer that is blowing in the wind, we'll hear it. And there it is. And the answer, uh, dear listener, is blowing in the wind for you, for me, and for all of us. Thank you very much.
Too many people there. 